Oh, you got the good stuff out tonight. Yeah, courtesy of a really great client. It's funny. It's an enigma. It's enigma. Oh, I was going to say the client or the drink. <laughs> no, the client was great. Okay, well, as long as the client was I clear. I didn't notice it was called Enigma. That's very cute. Comes with a button, too. You know, um, the the last podcast that we had air, a lot of people were writing about, um, you know, if if there's if, if, if there's an allegation and a trial, it's, you know, demonstrably false. You know, what can you do about it? And... You know, there was this sense of frustration. And, and, and I have to say this, like, as defense lawyers, we just do a job. I'm not an apologist for the system. I don't fix the system. I work within it. I do the best I can. We have a podcast where we try and educate people. And we've spoken to politicians and other people. But I can't change, you know, the electorate and how our government decides to implement legislation. So, you know, we're not... We're not able to right the wrongs of when wrongful accusations happen. And to the other argument is there's t- times when allegations are absolutely true. So, you know, there's got to be balance within the system. But we're a business and we're hired and we have an expertise and we know what the f- we're doing. And we're able to provide a high level of service and we're able to dig. And, and, and one other thing I want to say is that, you know, trying to work with clients and develop the defense and then be able to discover what ultimately is a false allegation or you know a high probability of being false takes work but let's say you take a case where really it's 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 pretty solid that it's a false accusation in my practice i've seen nobody charged um and if you want to sue the person by all means, but you got to hire a lawyer and then the other person has to have the capability of, of, of paying damages if you're able to establish it at trial. You know, you've been doing a bit of research on this just because of the questions we've been getting. Yeah. So. But before I get into the few cases that I found that are very interesting, we don't hear a lot in our popular culture about what happens to a complainant who's made false allegation, what happens to him or her after. Why do you think there's that gap? Well, just from a, you know, from a societal point of view, well, it's because of where we are. I mean, the, the our system is so bent on, I still think on hashtag we believe, right. on not creating that chilling effect for people to come forward with allegations. I think that's a real challenge for... Um, for hearing anything about this because it's just nobody's going to say or do anything about it because god forbid it should become public god forbid it should ever make a newspaper and then that then then there would be the other side of the story saying well here's another example of a misogynist point of view where it's just trying to shut down the voices of those who are victims yeah the chilling effect as you called it so I, I did a lot, I had to do a lot of digging, and, and it surprised me that I had to do this much digging just to find some samples. Doesn't surprise me, but yeah. Okay. I'll give you the three little snapshots, the three little case summaries, just to give you a sense that, you know, the, these complainants, they, they do get charged, but it's so rare, you don't hear about it very much. So there's one case uh, uh, from Alberta, it's uh, R versus Houdon, H-U-D-O-N. This was an 18-year-old woman. She was accused, she had accused three men of sexual assault, quite a horrific one, violent, 
as, as the court said, perverse sexual assault, whatever that means. Massive invest. You're some stop it. I see you're trying to I figure out what's perver perver perverse. What's, what's a perverse sexual assault versus as a, opposed to other ones, a yeah. vanilla sexual yeah. assault? Like, seriously, in any event, massive investigation, number of individuals interviewed, family members, spouses of the three men who were accused. One guy even took a polygraph test for all it's worth, which is not much, we know. Junk garbage, right? All three hired their own lawyers for this process. Finally, finally, before it gets before the men are even charged, she admit she admits before the charges are laid that she lied. Imagine that. Well, at least she did that. Well, she did the right thing, but the amount of energy expended, money expended, the resources, the resources to get there. So she was charged, as I said, sentencing judge. Uh, what was she charged with? She was charged with, I think it was obstruct or mischief, one of those public two. Mischief, yeah, public okay. mischief. Uh, the sentencing judge was not impressed. Um, she caused, he found she caused major stress and mental suffering for these three men, their families, as well as their reputations, which were completely destroyed pending this process. What do you think she got for that? Suspended sentence and probation. No, she actually got hit, which is refreshing. Uh, 15 months imprisonment. Oh, okay. You know, and I was surprised. I raised my eyebrow, too. I said, oh, okay. It happens. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so that was interesting. Another one, um, R versus Bishop. Similar. Obviously, these are all similar. Um, woman made false allegations. She had been abducted, sexually assaulted, and maimed by two unknown men. Uh, again, the, the effects of this complaint, huge. 30 police officers involved in a seven-day investigation costing 60 grand. Media were engaged to assist by, you know, gathering information from the public. Because there's a press release. Right. Yeah. After, you know, a week-long investigation, the police decided, eh, no foundation in fact. You know, they interviewed the offender. She admitted her false statement. And again. So they interviewed the, the alleged offender. Right. They interviewed the complainant right. a further time. Right. And then admitted. Right. I'm seeing a trend here. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Okay. I know. Uh, what, what do you think she got in that case? This one's out of Newfoundland. I'm going to go back to my Are suspended you gonna go sentence back to probation. No. Not close. 10-month conditional sentence. Which yeah, is... That's it's not a deterrent. It's not a deterrent. Like none of these, none of these are consequences we've heard about from uh, our upcoming podcast about the woman in England who got eight and a half years. Yeah, right. Like, like let's uh, not spoil that. Let's one. not spoil. This is a really good one to keep, come. Keep, keep watching. Good one coming up. And and just in the third little example, Ambrose R versus Ambrose. So she accused a police officer of sexually assaulting her while she was in a holding cell. At the police station, okay? Yeah. The guts, right? The gall of this woman. Upon her release, she told her brother she had been raped. She told a doctor she had been raped and made complaints to the police. Again, investigation initiated, lots of money spent. But no charges were laid against the police officer. Imagine that. She was convicted by a jury, public mischief. What do you think she got? Okay, 90 days. You're not doing well on this. Tonight. No, sorry. Do you want to call someone? Do you want to reach have, out? Yeah. <laughs> What's that game show? Uh, who wants to be a millionaire? Yeah, who wants to be a millionaire? Do you want to use your uh, lifeline? Lifeline. Yeah. Do you want to call someone? Yeah, no, because I, no. I, I have no faith in, in, no, in, no. This, in this. Okay, so two years less a day. It's something. That's good. It's something. It's some. 
you know, some... Was that because it was an allegation against a police officer? Ooh, now you're digging. I mean, you know, my problem here is in what we're seeing is, you know, these are all pre-charged... Right. That's the pattern. ...confessions right. of making a false accusation. So is this trend telling us that the only time there will be any type of action taken on behalf of the authorities is when the person makes the admission that they lied prior to charges being laid during the course of, thank God, an investigation. Right. Because because nowadays an investigation's like a, you know, take a statement and make exactly. an arrest. Make an arrest. Yeah, no, that's that's the terrifying trend. Unless someone, the complainant, the alleged complainant steps up and says, yeah, I lied. Because there was this case also you had that was from the uh, military court. Right. Which where, is a different world, but still. Where there was an extensive investigation to an allegation. Right. Of uh, a young uh, private, while was on some exercise, had alleged that um, another private had sexually assaulted her. Right. And then it was uh, referred to investigation. Right. But then also, there was an admission as to the falsity of the allegation. Right. And again, a light touch. It was a 30, 30 days in jail. Right. Which, you know, nothing compared to what the people who are subject to this um, go through. So so here's the question, because we have clients ask us about this. After, after you win a trial, I win a trial. The question is, what happens to them um, after I'm acquitted? Nothing. Nothing. We have to look at these people and say, not much. Maybe you can try something in civil court, but who's got money to you know, fund that? I, 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 you know, I had a case a number of years ago where based on the um, information that I had that included messaging and cell phone. Well, it's funny because we're going to talk about a case too. Yeah, but I had cell phone um, logs um, that on two of the major counts, my client wasn't uh, in the province. And um, when confronted on cross-examination, because back then Mm -hmm. I didn't need to bring a motion to try and have these records admitted. I could just use it as relevant evidence that had nothing to do with myth-based reasoning. And when confronted with that, the complainant uh, was stymied for a while and then still kind of insisted in some non-intelligible way that the sexual assaults occurred. And I had a fair amount of evidence to back this up, not just the records and the thing. And um, at the end of the day, the acquittal was very strong, finding that on these two counts, it was a multi-count information, um, that it was proven that my client was factually innocent. And nothing happened. And then one other one I spoke about a long time ago which pr- will always remain with me for the rest of my my career is, and I talked about this one a lot. Grace had helped me on this one a great deal. Grace Candela, who's a senior paralegal and now completing her master's degree in law with us. But we had this Chinese guy who was allegedly charged with um, taking his neighbor's wife, maybe abducting her, taking her to casino in Niagara Falls and having her there and then taking her back to a hotel room and sexually assaulting her and then coming back. And when they got back, the husband happened to be out in the driveway and she gets out of the car and all hell breaks loose and she says he raped her and his charge was very serious. And he was held in custody for a while to get bail. And uh, 
lost his job and everything. And then back then it used to be the police never uh, went after the surveillance footage from casinos because there's cameras everywhere. And back then, what was great was I could send a private investigator. I could write them. I could contact the legal department, send a private investigator, and have it turned over. Right. I didn't have to subpoena the f***ing thing. Really? Um, they were very cooperative. They actually respected what a lawyer was. I had sent In the, the olden days. The olden days. I'd sent them information that I could, and then I sent a, a very good private investigator out, and they gave us everything. And we were able to break down frame by frame by frame, literally from the moment they stepped in to the moment they left. And I remember cross-examining her about how she was essentially abducted, had a horrible time, didn't want to be anywhere near him, um, was trying to move away from him at all times, on and on and on. And then I, I took her frame by frame by frame, just holding his hand, kissing him, kissing his neck, he gives her $5,000. He f***ing rocked it at the casino. Like, f***ing rocked it. Playing blackjack. Like, just killed it. Gives her five grand cash, and she's f***ing making out with him where you get the cash. Like, A, I don't gamble. B, I've never been lucky in any of those things. So right. he's getting the money, and they're just f***ing making out. And they're, like, basically dancing, cuddling, touching everything. She's drinking while she's there, and the whole thing on the way out. And it was a devastating piece of evidence. Um... And I remember nudging the officer going, don't you feel a bit stupid not getting the uh, surveillance? And uh, the Crown, this was at a prelim, the Crown withdrew. I wrote the police saying, regardless how you feel about me, officer, because right. like I wasn't getting along with the guy, uh, are you going to be investigating her for public mischief and obstruct justice? Because my client lost his job. You know, I never got a reply. And she was never investigated, never charged. And my client um, was too broken. He, his wife left him. Oh, God. Justifiably so. I mean, like, you know, yeah, he, was, yeah. he was cheating yeah, on yeah. her. But, but his wife left him, and he'd lost his job, and he, he tried to rebuild his life. But he wanted no part of the civil system. He just didn't want to sue. He just, it just didn't. He was broken. He just right. didn't have it in him. It's and a I'm, long I'm not condoning infidelity in any way, no, shape, no, or form. No. But, but, a, but she was as complicit and made a false allegation to get out of the breakup of her marriage. Right. And and the, the silence was deafening. And we don't do justice to victims either because these occasions which may get out, and media don't report on it very much, no. but we do. I had to dig for these. But we do. We have this podcast to try and educate. You know, it's it, it, it's bad. And, and, I, and it's from everything you've dug up, and you were working on this for a few hours today. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's it. That's it. I couldn't find many, no. So where do you think the reluctance is? The crowns or the police? Both. Both. Because, I, I don't know, I, I can just imagine a case where, you know, you win. It's it's black and white, false allegation. Would that not piss off the crown? Like, would the crown not then look at her and say, you piece of garbage? And And I have to say, you know, the last series of cases that I've done with certain crown attorneys with pretty good evidence that we've disclosed through everything have been right. very good, like yeah. very, very good in, in the case. Um, but I don't feel that they have the call, that they think they can make the call, that they can do anything about it. And I think the officers are so now detached from it because they have been robbed of all of their discretion. Right. Right. They are no longer investigators. No. They're robbed of it. And for those officers who are not the true believers mm -hmm. but are just doing what they have to do, mm -hmm. I just... You know, nobody wants to step out of line to get their uh, 
their asses kicked. Right. No, we've created, sadly, a group of RoboCops. That's what it is. They show up. They take the one statement. Bye. You know, I know. I remember a number of years ago, as things started to change, a number of officers who I know and, and I've had cases with over the years said they were retiring. Yeah. And they said they were just not interested in no. this new way of policing. No. They're fettered. Their discretion's gone. They show up to the domestic, as we've talked about before. There's no investigation. Someone's getting arrested tonight. And you know, it's a shame because they're, they're like, I, I had to deal with a couple of situations where I actually got called when police went to the scene. And it doesn't happen often, but I was on the phone with the police officer. And all the police officer wanted to do was calm the situation. Right. De-escalate. Especially because there was some children involved. And the officer recognized that there was a lot of other circumstances impinging upon, you know, both the husband and wife at the time. And God bless them. Um, you know, I got I got called simply to make sure that the husband would leave, that I was able to verify that he'd have a place to go. I was in contact with the officer afterward. No charges were laid. Wow. You know. That wouldn't happen today. Well, this wasn't so long ago, but it's not. It's rare. It's rare. It's rare. And, and I think there's the desire but the there's the institutional um, uh, shackles right. for them to do that, right. and and I think the reluctance comes from all the political correctness that we have now that it's you just don't want to take that on. And I, and and I I do you really believe if if one or two complainants in palpable cases when there's an acquittal would be charged? Do you think it would really have that type of? I mean, we're not experts on that other right, side. Right. I don't think it would have a chilling effect. No, of course not. It would send a message, but not a chilling effect. I mean, I, I, I think it would simply say, for those of you who truly aren't violated, don't make don't a make, false allegation. Don't make crap up. For those of you who are, by all means, come forward. Right, right, exactly. Let, let's talk a little bit about, because again, some of the, one of the other interesting comments we got in the podcast that just aired was about, you know, and I sort of let off with this, you know, knowing what to look for, you can, you know, easily prove it. That's not really true. It's not that easy. It's not that easy, which kind of segues us into kind yeah. of part two of this discussion, which is, so what, what do you do when, you know, we now do have to go to trial. You do have to prove the, you know, the, the falseness of, of what's being alleged. Let's talk about the trial toolbox, as I love to call it. We'll and, get one. And, and then before we end, I just want to yeah, talk yeah. about it's still a presumption of you know, we don't do very many. I'm sorry to interrupt. No. We don't do many cases involving a a young child complainant mm -hmm. who's unrelated to um, to um, the accused, right. but but they're they're friends and families are right. friends, right. and they're all intertwined in that way. But um, and, and we have a case. Where I believe the guy's completely innocent um, for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. But there's the overriding palpable belief through investigation and everything else that nobody lies. Right. So in our in our toolbox, as you as you put it, we got to be pretty adept at what we have and what we do. Mm -hmm. So what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about you know detailed investigate. We have to basically conduct our own parallel investigation. Do we use private investigators? Yes, we do. Of course, we do. We have to grill our clients. We have to retain experts that we may need in terms of forensic digital data recovery. There's so much. We have to take statements from people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Create chronologies. There's a lot of work. You know, as as simple as the winds look, sometimes people have no clue what's behind that wind. What what tools are engaged when we prepare for these cases? Not a lot of people know that until after 
the success until after the win. And you know, and sometimes I found this with some of the clients recently. They kind of question or scratch their heads as the, as we're taking them through our process, our toolbox. Like, really, do we do we really have to do that? Do we really have to do this A B C? You know, do you really need my cell phone? Do we have to spend money on an expert to examine this? Yeah, we do. Yeah, I mean, in so many cases, there'll there'll be messages that can't be recovered. Right. We have to send it to an expert. Right. We have to have an extraction report so we get right. the metadata and everything so we can show it's not tampered with. Right. You know, sometimes when they say there's certain people who will have some evidence that's relevant, we got to hire an investigator. We can't interview them ourselves. Right. But then we have to try and get from people when we don't have to recover the messages, just get them to give us the messages in a, in a fashion where we can actually digest it because... Right. Somebody will think giving us over like a thousand messages, right. like it, it just takes like five seconds to go through right. it. They may be familiar with their messages, right. but we have to go through it. Right. Yeah, they, they don't understand. So that's part of the education process we bring to the table for them. Well, we do. We spend a lot of time doing that. But, um, you know, here's one pointer. And, and you know, if, if God forbid somebody's charged with it, but, you know, I try and explain, and I had one client, try and get across them very importantly that I need you to be part of this process. So, you know, I we send them all the disclosure, a transcript of the complainant statement, a transcript of a witness statement, and, and the clients keep saying, well, you know, you're not listening to me. And I go, no, no, I want to listen to you. But what I need you to be able to do is allow me to have a fully informed contextual discussion with you right. by you knowing everything that's available to the prosecution. Because by you just talking to me right now is not going to frame any of this. Right. It's just. And we've talked and, you know, we've tried to have a cathartic sort of explanation and get you through that emotional time. But now you got to be part of this team. And part of the process. Yeah. Which we've done a few times now. So trust us. We know what we're doing in terms of at what stage, for example, we're going to ask for a chronology for you or your version of the events. We don't want a version of the events in the absence of a context. No, and we need to know everything humanly possible right. about the connection between these two parties. Even right. if it's just for a few days, a few weeks, right. or a few months, right. we need to know everything. Right. But, you know, let's bring this back to trying to uncover. I think we're just doing this because of what came on the heels of a few cases where it was pretty palpable that these were you know, false accusations, right. you know, trying to tease out and help a client um, tell us and work through and, and sometimes as we do with the chronology, put into writing what the history is and try and find those relevant kernels to work with is not easily. Well, it's an uh, artificial experience for them. They're not used to a structured approach. They just want to sit down and tell you everything right away in the absence of disclosure with nothing that's not how it works well we can do it but it's not particularly it's not helpful. effective or helpful no the only thing we do is we, we need a certain amount of information in order to know what to ask for right because right? we need to know how they met the basics, heard all yeah. those basics but it's so important for people to be part of that defense team reading and going through everything so that we can have this really well-framed contextual understanding of where it is and then try and get at the nub of these things. Well, we have to be synchronized. That's the thing. Some clients think it's just a handoff to the lawyer. Here, defend me. Here's my story. You do the rest. That, that doesn't work. No, they got to be part well, of gotta it. they got to be part of it. It's a whole synchronized effort by everyone involved.
But, you know, so I'm just going to sort of move sideways for one second. So in trying to work, you know, with a client recently, um, and, and there was a number of interviews in this case of, of, of the complainant and, and, and a particular witness, and then some possibly a star witness. We'll see what happens with this, which I think it's totally contrived evidence, uh, fitting this narrative of this young complainant, um, is what permeated all this is how still the clinging to belief of, of prosecution authorities in, in some cases and, and the investigators that, you know, this could never be a lie. Right. And I don't know how we move off of this belief, this, this belief based on gender or an age of a complainant and the nature of the charge. I don't know what it's going to take for us to take a step back and go, no, people can lie. There is some movement in that. I've been researching that area. So stats can, for some reason, they stopped collecting this data. But there, there was a period of time when unfounded allegations where the police would say, okay, this isn't going any further, were collected. So at, at the highest point, I think there was 20% of the allegations that the police uh, investigated were unfounded. They shut them down. They didn't pursue it. For some reason, that kind of data collection has petered off. We don't hear about it anymore. It's almost a shyness or reluctance. Well, that's why we spoke about in a, a few episodes before, and in the last one, we said an academic has come out right. who wants to work with us to try and actually do a rigorous uh, academic study based upon transcripts and everything else. And I think it's an endeavor that we're trying to, to get going, and hopefully we can get some assistance and interest with. Um, but I'll tell you why they don't care. It's not the narrative that the government wants. Right. I mean, it comes from the leadership down. Mm -hmm. And if the leadership down doesn't want to uncover ugly truths, they're not going to look for it. Ugly truths don't get you votes. Sadly so, you know. But, you know, that's why everybody's so skeptical about, you know, our leadership in many ways. But, you know, it's, it's this blind approach. And... You know, it's it, this one case that I think I'm going to do a case study on afterward, and I don't want to say too much about it right now, but it, it's, it's, it's more um, out of the ordinary of what we do, but there's so many facets of this, which leads me to believe that this can't be a reality, that either this is an allegation transposed onto our client, which is a legitimate phenomenon, which I'm, I think in another episode, I, I, I want us and Diana to focus on as much research as we can pull about the legitimacy of of the transposing of an allegation onto another person for whatever reason that there are so many elements here that just has been either overlooked missed or not cared about i mean it, it's like i'm going to say this so mm -hmm. when we talk about our toolbox um and you talk about doing a defense investigation it's no joke mm -hmm. like so in this case this happens at a trailer park allegedly during the day on weekends where my client's trailer is beside somebody else's that literally you could reach out the window and shake hands and there's another one beside and there's only about 140 trailers in this park and everybody knows each other and there's people who go around as security throughout the day and there were no photos taken of the of the trailer park in the in, uh, police investigation. 
Not one of the neighbors who've been there for ever, ever has been interviewed. Like nobody. Um, and this particular trailer park had security. So people who are have their trailers there, who have volunteered as security, have golf carts that they go around. Yeah, because they take their community seriously. Yeah. It's a great little community. Yeah. And so we've interviewed people. Um, we're calling defense witnesses. You know, um, I, I'm doing a viewing of the location so I can get a better visual contextual grip. How much would it take to to just overcome? Okay, so we should believe this. I get that. But given the way this is described, maybe, maybe, maybe we should interview a few people who are there on the weekends to see maybe they're going to find information that actually will support their right. their investigation. Right. God forbid they find evidence that would say nah, this yeah. doesn't this doesn't make a lot of sense here. But there's a complete absence, and what I saw completely overlaying this, like so many other cases, because we had another one where the person was being interviewed and was saying, no, like, please speak to this person. Please speak to that person. Like, it's not possible. No, we're not going to be investigating. Right. They shut down. Blinders get put on and that's it. But I, I just, again, I, I guess that's, we're just, I think I'm just going in circles because I, I <laughs> every, frustrating time, circle. every time I open up another file that I'm, I'm going to be litigating and we're working on multiple ones at a time and I just see all the stuff that's missed and all the stuff that we have to do well, we're doing and we're their happy job. To do we're it. doing the police job to some extent. Some of this could have easily been yeah. done by police. Yeah. You know how hard it is sometimes to try and get a, a, a witness who's not necessarily connected to our client right. and get them to actually want to be interviewed? No, they don't want to. They don't. But if you're a police officer, they don't have a choice. Yeah, well, they, they feel this compulsion to, yeah. to meet with the police right. and talk to them. Authority I mean, figure. Have you had a client say to you, well, why don't you just subpoena this person to trial? Of course. Yeah, I'll just subpoena. I'll I've just, never yeah, interviewed. Never interviewed. Don't know what's going to no come out of their mouth. I have no clue what's going to come out of their yeah. mouth. But yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. But but for the police to take this step and go, look, I, I think given the way this area is set up, we probably should be doing these interviews. Right. Um, do a couple, nothing. A full canvas, as they call it. So, you know, again, this brings us back full circle to the fact that, you know, as part of the defense work that has to be done, you're doing, in some cases, a full defense investigation. Right. And it's not, it's not a joke. It's a lot of work. Yeah. And if we don't do it, you know, people are going to, you know, we don't do our job. We, we don't undertake files unless we're able to do this. If, if, right. if, if we're not able to do this, the, the, we don't, we, ethically speaking, we just don't think we can do our job. Well, it, it's what happened in the case we're going to talk about tonight. Perfect transition. You like that? Yeah. That was very smooth. Excellently done. So recent case from the Court of Appeal. His Majesty the King and R.G. Uh, just released uh, May a few weeks ago. 2023 ONCA 343. Yeah. So I'll, I'll set it up set it for up. you. I'll set it up for you. So first a little bit about the law as, as it's dealt with it. This is a very, I'd say, unique case, exceptional case. You rarely see that, this in the criminal system. That's why it's... It's an important one to... Uh, I'll take it slow because good it's Good work by, by some of our colleagues. Yes, great work on it. Very good work. 
So first of all, let's talk a little bit about um, the accused in this case, or the appellant. So the, the appellant in this case was convicted of... So the appellant is on appeal. Right. Some people don't understand. So they were the accused at trial. Yes. On appeal, they're called the, the appellant. appellant. Yes. Thank you. So the appellant in this case uh, stands con stood convicted of numerous offenses arising from the sexual abuse of his daughter. And I guess the transition I said is, mm -hmm. sometimes when it's a young child, and it could be a family member, right. you know, the inclination is, why would they ever lie? They can't be lying. Of course. Okay, go ahead. The abuse is said to have started when the complainant was 9 or 10 years of age and lasted until she was just short of her 17th birthday. Uh, there were five separate time periods or incidents that formed the subject of the allegations. Um, so at, at trial, um, you know, the, the trial counsel did, uh, you know, what trial counsels do in these types of cases, examined multiple uh, inconsistent statements, conflicting disclosures, um, motive to fabricate, except curiously enough, and this is going to piss you off, I know, the appellant did not testify. I, I just, I, you know, I, I don't want to... Let's do a side footnote on that. Yeah, I don't want to, again, I don't mean to second, second guess, guess no, no. other lawyers. And, and, and you know, I, I, I find it almost impossible, uh, you know, to truly get the narrative across, to truly have success in these cases if your client doesn't testify. Well, it, we... it, it is, it's incredibly important for your client to get their story out. Well, that's why we call them he says, she says cases. So if he doesn't say anything, we're left with what she says, and that's a problem, right? It is. I mean, there are some cases where you obliterate the Crown's evidence for right. obvious inconsistencies and problems, and the case can come to an end. Right. Failing that, your clients have to be prepared, and they have to testify. Right. So here, as, as one can expect, the verdicts turned largely, if not exclusively, on the trial judge's acceptance of the complainant's credibility. This was a credibility case. And here's where things get interesting in this case. So he's found guilty, but between the verdict and the sentencing, the appellant fires his lawyer, for whatever reason, gets a new lawyer. The new lawyer now, uh, moves to obtain the appellant's, his client's, cell phone records for a period of time that captured the last alleged offense. They get those records. And then, as the reasons will show, uh, the phone records uh, concerned um, the appellate court because they, for example, they showed that he was not at the location of the fifth alleged incident, as an example, right? So, so what... It was pretty... Pretty compelling evidence Pretty to compelling, show I'd that say. he was not there during what was a very graphically described vicious, right. brutal sexual assault. Right. And the records established he wasn't there. <laughs> right. Like, it's that's, that's... Wouldn't have even been in the vicinity. Pretty huge, I'd yeah. say. So prior to the sentencing, now that he has the uh, new lawyer on board, he moves to reopen the trial, a very rare process, and asks... But permissible. Permissible. And I'll, I'll, I'll Just so everybody that. knows... A judge alone, on a judge alone trial, has the ability to reopen the case up until the time of sentence is imposed. Once a sentence is imposed, that's it. But prior to that, on application, a judge can reopen. Right. So the trial judge dismissed the application, put the matter over for sentencing, ultimately sentenced him to 10 years. 
huge. Yeah. Um, but just to explain a little bit about what you were just saying. Um, so the judge, with when there's no jury, has the jurisdiction uh, not just to reopen, but to vacate an adjudication of guilt. He can set aside guilt, a decision that someone's been found guilty prior to sentencing uh, and prior to the imposition of the sentence. And, and as the Court of Appeals said here, this is rarely done. Uh, typically, um, th what the appellate court or the judge before whom this application is being made has to consider a few serious factors. Whether the defense has been duly diligent uh, during the trial proper, um, whether there are exceptional circumstances for this new evidence. Um, uh, to quote the court, um, in exceptional cases, the, the cogency of new evidence will have to be so strong that despite a failure of due diligence by the trial lawyer, the interests of justice will demand that the finding of guilt be vacated and the trial reopened. This, as they say, is one of those rare exceptional cases. So, so just let's break that down into real terms. So right. let's say you have phone records and because of the information from the phone record company and the actual records themselves, because in this case, it included records of the complainant because she was on his cell phone plan. Right. So there was a lot of cell phone data available and it it's pretty cogent in showing that on this one last brutal sexual assault, he was not there. Right. And then I think also on one uncharged right. uh, allegation, also a similar right. major inconsistency, right. not there at that time. Right. That just in and of itself is very cogent evidence that should, regardless of whether the lawyer was truly diligent enough right. in trying to obtain these records prior to, should be caused to open up the trial right. and reconsider innocence or guilt. Right. And that's kind of the court's focus was not so much uh, the due diligence or the yeah. effectiveness or ineffectiveness of, of trial counsel. It was just the incredible importance of this evidence, which uh, without it would have resulted in a travesty. But it, and the trial judge focused on the fact that all that was going to happen here was ultimately this was to declare a mistrial to undo a strategic. I think we need to explain this for a yes. second. A strategic move made by defense counsel. So defense lawyers will make strategic decisions. One of those is, you know, instructing your client or advising your client to testify or not. If that strategic decision is made and then it's not to your advantage, you can't necessarily go back and change it, right? So in this case, I think the judge perceived this somewhat as an end run around the right. strategic decision, ultimately trying to get a mistrial, when in fact that should not have been the focus. Correct. And, and as the court says here, these cell phone records were available to the defense all along, right? So the trial judge, for reason, you know, was not impressed with the fact that they hadn't been. It happens. It, but it, it happens. happens. It happens. But the, the important part was that had these records gone in, the appellant may have made the decision to testify with the benefit of those records, bolstering his own bolstering his denials and his credibility so that was of key concern um, uh, to the uh, court of appeal um, they weren't so much concerned as I've said in the exercise of due diligence they were more concerned about wow if this guy had had these records he maybe would have testified he probably would have testified and then these records would have completely supported the denials he was making so very important. You know, these cell phone records were so important that 
you know, there was plenty of testimony from the complainant that the the accused had carried his cell phone everywhere. Right. And there was cell tower information contained within this data of a small town. That's how cogent it was. So you could know whether yeah. the person was near the location right. where the sex assault had occurred, just to give you a specific example. It's not something you can easily overlook and go, ah, you know, yeah. Yeah. I, I just don't know how you can... And, and I'm glad the Court of Appeal focused more on more on the appellant because they say here, this is on page 20 if you're looking, it really comes down to the fact that the failure in due diligence deprived the appellant of information that could have allowed the appellant to make more informed decisions about how to proceed on fundamental issues to the trial. Again, had these records been before the court, the guy would have likely testified. Yeah. And that was key. You're pausing. Yeah, because I'm just, you know, imagine for a moment that this would be denied. Yeah, as it was at trial. Yeah. I mean, just just pause for a moment. You have cell tower information showing that, and again, phones ping off of your cell towers. And in a city, there's cell towers everywhere, and so... To determine location is sometimes a little harder because everything is so close, but you can do it pretty accurately. And in rural areas, you have a larger space, but you can tell whether somebody is close to a certain location where a sex assault allegedly occurred, or we've had this often in in homicides where it's a whodunit or something like that. And one of, and the, 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 um, the veracity of the evidence of the complainant about the last sex assault, for example, in this case, and the horrific nature of it. Um, Juxtapose that with cogent evidence saying he's nowhere near that location when this allegedly happened. And it's not just location. The appellant's phone records, I'm just reading from page... There's more. Yeah, there's more, folks. The appellant's phone records show no call to the complainant's phone on October 3rd, 2019, when she claims that he had called her. None. Second, while the complainant's phone record shows two calls on October 3rd, only one is an incoming call to the complainant's phone, two hours before she says she received a call from the appellant. Yeah, so just just for a moment, imagine that you wouldn't get a retrial on this with that type of evidence. This is an absolute, this could be nothing short of a miscarriage of justice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the Court of Appeal was great and did the right thing, focusing on what information the accused could have had at the time of trial and therefore would have made a different decision about testifying. Right. This evidence would have been great for cross-examination. Completely. And, um, you know, this is, you know, at this stage, uh, this is, this is uh, you know, a travesty avoided at the moment. We'll have right. to see. There, there may be much more to the evidence that, of course, we don't have right, right, on right. this uh, appeal decision. But, um, but you know, even on the appeal mm-hmm. and even on the motion itself, I, I, I think I'm correct. The Crown's approach to the evidence really unchallenged it. Right. In other words, they weren't suggesting, oh, it wasn't this date, it was another date. Right, right. You know, it was, it was, they were pretty much remaining that right. that was the date alleged by the complainant. Right, right. I mean, I, I just, uh, you know... Good for the Court of Appeal. Yeah, and it's, um, what's interesting is they, they don't just set aside uh, one or two of the convictions. They they decide to set aside 
verdicts on everything and order a new trial on everything. Right, and, 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 and let's talk about that for one important point. So the Court of Appeals said the fact is that while the evidence is highly relevant mm-hmm. to the fifth incident, it's also directly linked to the complainant's credibility, both on those counts and in general. Her credibility stood at the center of each conviction. I would set aside all verdicts and order a new trial. And this is something we have to be very important about uh, mentioning that, you know, there's often an argument that, you know, records and other things uh, are, are, are geared only at the credibility of the complainant. And the criminal code uh, has said that credibility is not, not a <laughs> credibility at large, not a, not a relevant issue. Yeah, yeah that's bullshit. Yeah, exactly. And I faced this argument in records applications. Credibility is central often in sexual assault cases and crucial on the counts that are charged. And in this case, it was it was front and center on each right. and every count. Right. Yeah. And so there's, as I call it, this knock-on effect that if it's likely that the complainant had demonstrably lied about this fifth incident, that then inevitably has to have a very serious impact on the complainant's credibility and reliability on all the accounts. Exactly. This is exactly what the Court of Appeals should have done. Yeah. And credibility in these cases is now and will be forever a central issue. Yeah, yeah, and don't let someone tell you otherwise. And and it's important to say, and it's not, you know, again, not to, not to, you know, when you're doing your defense work, it, it's hard to get everything sometimes, but you've got to be very careful about digging and digging and digging to make sure you're getting from your client every possible avenue of information, and this is what you know we were talking about before about in your toolbox, is it's not you got to be really working with your clients to say what what can you have that you might not actually think about right now right. that can help me. Well, that's part of the shovel we have to use, right? Yeah. So looping back to our toolbox, give a few examples of of that shovel. What do you, what do you ask clients for? Well, we we, we have a list now. Like you yeah, know, yeah, we we're going through every single communication. We you know call logs, photographs. You know, um, going to the scene, taking a look. Um, Give us your Instagram account. Give us all your, social media all stuff, social which, media. which may be of relevance. Like right. we go through, we're not saying it's relevant in all cases, no, no. but you have to go through all of this Due and diligence. try and assess, yeah. depending upon what the circumstances are, to tease out and try and get from the client all sources of information that may in fact bear fruit to you. And it's really important for the cooperation from the client. They gotta be part of the defense team. Right, they have, and it's almost like we have to create the inventory with them yeah. of, of everything we're gonna need. And you have to remember that, you know, tr- sometimes, and I, you know, I've tried to explain this to some lawyer, younger lawyers when, you know, when they're starting out in this field or they're here at the office, that, you know, a client comes in and they're in the throes of an emotional traumatic event to them. And being charged and life, you know, being altered and, and whatever effects it has, You've got to work with the client through these emotions to try and get them to focus on what you need to get out of them. And that is a process. Right. And we often, as, as we tell them, take care of yourself first. Okay. We need you to yeah. be in a position of stability. Yeah. And it's hard. Uh, it's hard. It's hard. Most people aren't prepared to admit they need help or get professional help to stabilize, but it's important. Well, we've referred to social workers for them to get therapy that's not part of the allegation but just adjunctive therapy to help them through the emotions of being charged and and this one case that we had the client still in therapy afterward yeah. even winning and establishing a you know false accusation still needs to deal with the trauma their heads need to be clear for the marathon as you say good chat good chat see you soon thank you I'll everybody you for viewing and keep coming up with these great questions and comments and if you like what we're talking about 
Please like, share, subscribe, hit notification. Did I get them correctly? All right. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Good night.